he is a pretty cool guy. He had a, a peaceful philosophy. I think he's misinterpreted by a lot of people. I don't know, because I don't really believe in him, so I don't really think anything of him. Uh, I mean, he could have been a real person. I mean, I'm sure he was. I mean, I'm sure he was just, you know, good at what he did or something. Jesus is the, our Lord and Savior that died on the cross for us for our sins. I feel that Jesus is a modern-day scapegoat. Jesus is God's son, and he was sent to save our sins. Who is Jesus? He was a dude lived back in the day. Pretty awesome. He had a beard. He was just kind of a guy with a really unique, positive message as that kind of gave a lot of people a lot of hope. He probably existed, but I don't believe that he was the son of God or anything. He died on the cross for us and uh, saved us and rose again from the dead. Uh, Jesus was a man, from what I figure. What if you're right and he was just Welcome to a new topic that we are starting today, which I am very excited for, and I hope that you're excited for as well. Because what we're going to do starting today for the next four, today plus four more weeks after today, is we are going to take a look at five statements that Jesus made in the Gospels. And each one of these statements is what's called one of the I am statements. And the I am statements are seven, or seven statements that appear in the Gospel of St. John, where Jesus was explaining who he was and describing who he was, but in a very simple yet profound kind of a way. And each one of these statements carries like a lot of depth to it. And our goal is to answer this question, as you saw in the little intro video at the beginning, is who is Jesus? And really, there's no more important question in the entire universe because the answer to that question won't just determine your eternity, but also, as we'll see here, is going to determine your life here on this earth and the way you live your life, and the quality of life that you lead, and the hope with which you get through this world and its difficulties with. Who is Jesus? Seven I am statements. We're going to talk about five of them. First one we're going to talk about today is, in my opinion, the most difficult of the seven to understand. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. I am the resurrection and the life. Why is this one the most difficult of all the I am statements to relate to? Because we don't know what resurrection means. Anybody resurrected from the dead? Anyone's uncle, mom, sister? Anybody gone through any kind of resurrection experience recently? Like Jesus says, I am the shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. We know what a shepherd looks like. We've seen him in the pictures like sheep. I am the vine. We've seen a vine. I am bread. Okay, we know what bread is. But Jesus says, I am resurrection. What's that mean? Maybe 
there's someone in this room, and there probably isn't, but just hypothetically speaking, maybe there's someone who did witness someone receive like a miraculous healing, like the life support and the people said that he's brain dead and all this kind of stuff, and he miraculously came back. But I got news for you. That isn't resurrection. That's not resurrection. That's resuscitation at best. Because that person who may have come back to life is probably going to die again. But Jesus says, I'm resurrection. And resurrection means die, alive, never die. That's why he says right there. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Because this resurrection is not something that we can relate to, we don't really understand what this sentence means, and we think it means like, okay, there's life in heaven, and Jesus like, gives us life in heaven. But I want to break down this sentence. What does it mean when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and see what it means for me today. What it means for me eternally, but more importantly, what it means for me today in my day-to-day -day life. To understand it, we have to get the context of when this verse was given, when this statement was made. This sentence, Jesus said it in the context of a story in John chapter 11, which is a long story, which is a story about a guy named Lazarus. And I'm sure you guys have all heard the story before, which is Lazarus, who was a friend of Jesus, who died. All right, we'll pick up the story in John in chapter 11, and we'll just kind of read some selected verses from it. So Lazarus was a good guy, and he had a sister named Martha and a sister named Mary. Jesus was good friends with the family. Lazarus got really, really sick, then eventually he died, and everyone was mourning, and everyone was sad, except one person. Who was that one person who wasn't mourning? John chapter 11, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. These are two funny verses. Like verse 5 doesn't fit with verse 6. Verse 5 says he loved them so much. He loved the family so much. So therefore, when he heard the news, he did absolutely nothing. Doesn't it seem like, like I'm just starting you off right here. Well, I'm just getting warmed up. Doesn't it seem like oftentimes Jesus tells us how much he loves us, then when we're in problems, he doesn't do anything. I love you. I'm there for you. Yeah, I'm your savior. I'm your whatever. I'm your whatever. Okay, God. And then he does nothing. That's how the story starts off. Jesus loved them so much, so he did absolutely nothing. And he just watched them for two whole days. And everyone's waiting for him to say, okay, go raise him from the dead. I can't go raise him from the dead. Go comfort Martha. Go say hi to Mary. Go visit them. Bring flowers. Say a Bible verse. Like, you wrote the Bible. Like, just say, you can just bring out a verse or two. Like, you are the Bible. So just say something. He did absolutely nothing. Actually, I shouldn't say that. He did something before this verse. The verse right before it, verse 4. Before he did this, he did... He did not do that. Where's Sean's at? <laughs> the verse right before it. Oh my, okay. The verse right before it. Okay, in John chapter 11, verse 4. That's okay. You don't need it right there. Jesus, when he heard this news, before he stayed and did absolutely nothing, he said to his disciples, and he said, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick. He said, no, 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 don't worry. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Okay, you're going to test me if I got that verse right or not. That's not in my notes, but I think I got that. Okay? The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Does that make it better or worse that he did nothing? So Jesus hears this bad news, does absolutely nothing. Here's the worst disaster that could happen to this family. Lazarus died. And then not only he doesn't go, but then he says, no, don't worry. This sickness is not unto death, it's for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Better or worse? Better or worse? You lose your job. You got nothing. You're depressed. I say, don't worry. God is good. And God is going to bring glory from it. 
okay, why didn't God bring glory from someone else losing their job? Like all of a sudden, the only way God's going to bring glory is for me to lose my job? I'm sick, I got cancer, okay, and I'm in the hospital. And the priest comes and says, don't worry, thank God. Okay, it's easy for you to say you walk around without tubes in your nose. When we say, here's the verse right here, this comes. When someone comes, and you're in this tough situation, and you hear this, this, this someone coming and saying, no, don't worry, did I get it right? Six, nine, seven, for the glory of God, seven, I got it right, I got it right. Son of God may be glorified through it. That usually doesn't make me feel better. In fact, forgive me, okay, let me voice what oftentimes you feel when someone like me, you're in a tough time, and then me, I come to you and say, no, no, don't worry, just pray and thank God and everything's going to be fine. You hate my guts. You hate my guts. And you want to say, give me real, don't just tell me everything's going to be okay. You're saying that because you're okay. I'm single, and I don't have any solution for my singleness in sight. Don't just tell me, no, but God is going to make you the best single life in the whole wide world. That's not what I want. I got no job, and I got nothing in sight. Don't just tell me, no, just pray, and, and God will provide. He provided uh, food for the Israelites in the desert. Okay, I don't want to be in the Bible story. I just want money and a paycheck so I can put food on my table. So many times we go through these situations, and it seems like God does absolutely nothing. I know couples who trying and trying and trying to have a baby. And they pray and they do everything right. Everything right. No baby. And then there's their, the worst. After that, there's another couple who they're friends with. They just look at each other across the room and they conceive twins. <laughs> and they are trying and they are trying and they are trying. And then someone says, no, don't worry. It's all for the glory of God. This is exactly the scene in John chapter 11. This is exactly the scene in John chapter 11. They're struggling. They had a disaster. Jesus said, I love you guys. You're the best. Don't worry. God will be glorified in it. And he just kind of left them to struggle with. Eventually, Jesus arrives on the scene. In verse 17, it says, when Jesus came, look in verse 17. He found out in verse 3, and not until verse 17 that he came two days later. When Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Why this is important. Jewish and Hebrew folklore at the time, okay, was, this was their belief, that after a person died, their spirit would kind of hover around the body for three days, all right? And then after the third day, on the fourth day, the spirit would go away. So basically, the idea was that in case someone died, okay, and came back to life, the spirit was kind of close by, just in case, all right? But after the third day, the spirit was gone, so meaning like there's no hope of this person coming back to life. First three days, okay, maybe something could have happened. But after the third day, this is not a real belief. This is not Bible or Christianity. This is just, like, we all have, like, funny little beliefs that we have. This was their funny little belief. This is what they believe. So the point here is, is that Jesus waited until really they were hopeless. And really there was no solution in sight. And really everyone, like one of my favorite verses in the Bible, in the old King James, when they describe Lazarus, okay, when Jesus goes inside the tomb to, to call Lazarus, the Bible says it had been four days, so now by this time, it says by, now, by this time, he stinketh, is what the King James says. It says he stinketh, okay? So he wasn't just dead, he was dead dead, stinketh dead, okay? That's how dead Lazarus was at this time. Goes on, verse 20. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Why do you think Mary didn't go with him, with her? to see Jesus. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. 
Martha runs out to meet him. Mary doesn't. Why? We want to over-spiritualize things sometimes. We want to make everyone in the Bible seem good. I think Mary was discouraged. I think she was down. Yeah, maybe if he had come the first day, I'd run out to meet him. But what's the point now? What's the point now? Like, really, what's the point now? He's dead. He's passed. He stinketh dead. Like, okay, maybe on the first day, the second day, but now it's like, okay. I mean, we're happy that he's here, but she wasn't running out to him expecting a miracle. She was down. She was discouraged. And she, like many of us, we might not say that. We might not go out and tell the whole wide world. We put on our nice smile when we come to church on Sunday, and someone says, hey, how's, and we say, no, God willing, and we're praying. But inside, we hate the situation, and we're angry, and we're discouraged, and we're depressed, and we're hopeless, and we feel like God has painted us into a corner. And that's the way Mary felt. Martha, a little more feisty, verse 21. Martha ran to him, but it wasn't run to him to say how much she loves him and appreciates him. Look what she says. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Ouch. That's tough. No, hi, how are you? How was the trip? Hungry, thirsty? If you were here, this wouldn't happen. That's tough. You think Jesus was offended when she said this? I don't think even close to offended. Because look what she says in verse 22, next verse. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. I love that she calls Jesus out. And I always tell this to people. When you've got a problem with Jesus, call him out on it. Go to him. Like, just like we talked about earlier today. Talk to him, don't talk about him. You've got a problem with God, go talk to God. Don't talk about God. Don't tell the whole wide world how God has let you down. And God hasn't provided. And complain and bitter and grumpy and all this stuff. You've got a problem with God, get away from the people, go to God and say, hey, God. Why you let this happen? I'm disappointed. And God will answer, okay? And you see that Jesus wasn't offended by his response. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. He responds to her with her question, brother, he says he will rise again. And Martha says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus says he will rise again. She's like, yeah, Jesus, I know heaven, you know, eternity and all that stuff. But like, I'm sad about now. And Jesus says, Look here, lady, I'm not talking about heaven and eternity. I'm talking about now. In the next verse, it says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Martha said, don't give me nice Christian speak. Don't just give me a nice Bible verse that says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll see him in heaven. And Jesus says, I'm not just giving you nice Christian speak. I'm not just saying you're going to see him in heaven. You will see him in heaven, and I'm not, I'm not saying none of that's true. That's all true, but I'm not talking about heaven now. If I was talking about heaven, I wouldn't have said verse 25. I'd have just left it at, your brother will rise again, and, the, and that. I'm talking about right here and right now. I'm telling you, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha didn't understand what he was saying, and if we're honest, we don't understand what he's saying either. But that's what we want to understand right now. How can Jesus, in the middle of death, depressing, discouraging, hopeless. Say, don't fear. I'm the resurrection and the life. That's what we want to figure out right now. First thing to understand is resurrection isn't what Jesus does. It's who he is. Resurrection isn't what Jesus does. It's who he is. What's the difference? Resurrection is not an event that we pray for. Resurrection is a person 
that we cling to. Resurrection is not an event. In whatever circumstance you're in, for them it was Lazarus. For you it's your job or the kids or, or your spouse or your lack of a spouse or whatever it may be. Whatever situation it's in, resurrection isn't an event that you're praying for. Resurrection is a person that you're clinging to. It's a person that you're clinging to. The, the image in my mind. Imagine you have fallen into the ocean, middle of the ocean, and it's a raging storm and a raging sea where even if you're the best swimmer, you're Michael Phelps Jr., you still can't keep afloat in this kind of mess. It's raging. And all of a sudden, there's a boat, and the boat, they throw out a life raft, okay, on a rope, okay? That life raft is your resurrection. That's your life, that's your life raft. That's what it means. It says, I am the resurrection, and we cling to him, not an event. He is the raft that will pull us into the boat, which is this life of, of power and this life of whatever this life that he has envisioned for us. He's the resurrection. Resurrection isn't an event. Resurrection is a person. And he's the only person who can get us on that boat. The boat is getting through your storm. Whether it is solving the storm, which sometimes it is. Sometimes it is healing. Sometimes it is solving your problem. But sometimes it's not. I don't want to lie to you and say that every sick person gets raised from the dead. That's not true. But even if it's not solving the problem, it's getting you through the problem in such a way that the problem becomes a good thing in your life, not a bad thing. Can you believe that I can say that? The problem, which you are resisting and running from. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection. If you cling to me in that problem, five years from now, you're going to look back on that problem and say, it was a tough time. It's a difficult time. I wouldn't trade it for the whole wide world. That's life on the boat with the resurrection. But the only way to get there is to cling to Jesus. Why? Why can Jesus say, I am the resurrection? He's the only one that can say that? Because he's the only person that resurrected from the dead. And he's the only one, like I said before. I'm not talking about my belief. I'm not talking about an opinion. I'm saying a fact. Jesus died and rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, then anything that's underneath death, which is all of life, he's conquered it, and he can conquer anything that we may face, no matter what it may be. Now, let me pause the story right now of Lazarus and say this. I would imagine that at that moment in time, up until about two minutes ago, maybe you all were with me about two minutes ago, and I'm sure in the last minute or two, I lost some people. Because some people disagree with something that I just said. Or some people at least never heard it said the way I said it. I said the resurrection is a fact. It's not a belief. It's not an opinion. It's a historical fact. And you say, hey, wait a minute. We all have our own beliefs. So who are you to tell us what to believe and believe and believe and believe in all this kinds of stuff? We saw in the video a minute ago that you ask a bunch of people on the street about who Jesus is, and you get a lot of different opinions. You say he's a nice guy. Some people say he's son of God. Some people say this. Some people say that. But a lot of people will tell you, that they don't believe that he rose from the dead. In fact, in this country right now, 80, studies say that 84% of people in the United States of America say, call themselves Christian. Okay, 84% of people label themselves as Christian. 50% of people believe that the resurrection is true and historical, and the other 50% say it may or may not have been. How can 84% of the people say that I'm Christian, but only 50% of the people believe in the resurrection as a historical fact? That shows that there's a problem. Is the resurrection something that we can say it might have happened, we're not sure exactly? 
Is the resurrection an optional belief? Like, we believe Jesus is a good guy and he was God, but this resurrection stuff, like, it's kind of hard to believe. Is that an option? To believe in the resurrection as an option? St. Paul doesn't think so. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Said another way, in my translation of this verse, if it's true, then nothing else matters. And if it isn't true, then nothing else matters. The resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. It holds it all together. If this is true, nothing else matters. And if this isn't true, nothing else matters. What I want to do now is I want to try to convince you that the resurrection of Christ isn't just a belief that we have. It is a fact of history. Y'all ever seen the movie Few Good Men? Okay, one of my favorite movies. Ever since that movie, I always want to be a lawyer. Since that movie, okay. But also, when Tom Cruise was in Top Gun, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, okay. And Jerry Maguire, I wanted to be a sports agent guy, okay. I like Tom Cruise movies. All right. Few Good Men. There's a great line in Few Good Men. There was the time, if you remember the movie, so Tom Cruise was a defense attorney, all right, and he was defending these two guys, all right, who were accused of a crime. The crime was? Code Red. Come on. Code Red, okay. They basically did something they shouldn't have done. And their story was we were commanded to do it by the top guy. Tom Cruise was on the defense team with Demi Moore, okay? And Demi Moore was the compassionate whatever it was, and she really believed in these guys. And she was angry at Tom Cruise for not fighting harder for them because he was saying, basically, you know what? They're guilty. Just do a plea bargain, like whatever. And she said, no, we should fight. And then she asked him a very important question. She said, do you believe that they're innocent. And he kind of avoided. Then she asked again, do you believe they were innocent? And he responded with a great sentence. He said, it doesn't matter what I believe. It only matters what I can prove. Stick it to it. It doesn't matter what I believe. It only matters what I can prove. And I believe the same thing when it comes to our faith. I don't want you just to believe in the resurrection. I want to now, I'm Tom Cruise, you're the jury. Okay? This is my dream come true. I'm Tom Cruise. You're the jury. Okay? And my wife is Demi Moore. Okay? (laughs) I want you to put on your jury mind, and I want you to remove all that you learned from Sunday school and all that you've been taught and all that you, whichever side of the field you may fall on. And I want you to see that the the resurrection of Christ is a historical fact. And if this resurrection is true, that there is a man who died and was dead in the grave, and then he rose, then everything is different. Everything is different. And everything in my life can be different as well. If it's true that he rose, he died, he rose, and he's with me, then everything is going to be different. But we need to make this not just a belief, but something that we know is true as a historical fact. I believe oftentimes we believe in Jesus. We like Jesus. He's the best. But you know why we don't sell out for him? Because a little piece in our mind is like, what if it isn't true? What if that's kind of just something they made up? We don't sell out for something that we think is true. You'll never sell out for something you think is true. You'll only sell out when you know that it's true. That's my goal here today. Before I tell you about that, I want to tell you about this guy. Y'all have heard of this guy? Sir Lionel Lucku. Sir Lionel Lucku. Famous guy who lived... I think he was somewhere in the uh, Caribbean area. 
right? He was a British guy, but he lived somewhere in the Caribbean area in, like, the islands over there. Sir Lionel Lacoub is, you can look, find him on, on Wikipedia or in the Guinness Book of World Records, whatever it is. He is the most successful defense attorney of all time. He won more, like, he would defend people, and he got more people acquitted than anyone else in the history of all the world. It says right here, by age 71, which was 1985, he succeeded in getting 245 consecutive murder charges acquitted. 245 consecutive murder charges acquitted. Best lawyer of all time by Guinness Book of World Records and all these kinds of standards. What does it take to be that successful as a defense attorney? Someone like this isn't taking cases off the street. All right? He's not advertising in the infomercials for anyone who uh, got a mess with a meal or whatever that kinds of stuff is. Someone like this is very savvy, is very analytical. Someone like this is very logical. And someone like this is very good at evaluating what's true and what's not true. And what constitutes reliable and provable versus what's fluffy. Because if it's fluffy, you're not going to take that case. Wouldn't it be great if we could take someone like this with his skill set and we could say, hey, take a look at this Jesus guy and tell me, does the case hold water? Or is it kind of a fluffy case? Well, good news for you. We're in luck. Sir Lionel Luck, who did exactly that. At one point in time in his life, he took all his analytical skills, his lawyer skills, his reasoning skills, and he applied it towards Christianity and towards Jesus Christ himself. And he wanted to see all these fables, all these legends, all this stuff that Christians talk about. I'm going to disprove it. And you know the result of his, of his analysis? Watch this. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Y'all hear what he's saying? He's not saying, I really hope it's true. He's not saying, my Sunday school teacher told me. He's not saying, I read it in the Bible. He's saying, I evaluated the evidence. And I'm a smart guy because I do this for a living. When you evaluate the evidence, see what it is that is written, what it is that we know to be fact. Unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. How can anyone say this? About some, like, you can say unequivocally, the sun is up. Okay, you can say the sky is blue. You can say that uh, I have feet. But how can you say that this person rose from the dead? Like, where I'm from, pigs don't fly, fish don't talk, dead people don't rise. That's what I was taught my whole life. And he's saying, like imagine him saying unequivocally, this pig flies. How could he say something like that which goes against all logic and all of our human experience? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to tell you three pieces of evidence, all right? Again, I'm me and then you're you, okay? Three pieces of evidence for the resurrection based on the research and by the work by Sir Lionel Lucku and others who have done the same thing that he did. Real easy to remember. Three things that prove the resurrection is true. First, exhibit A is early. Exhibit A is early. What I mean by early is that it is important to note that all the accounts of Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection were written early 
in close proximity to when the event actually happened. Some people like to say that Christianity is fables and legends and all kinds of stuff that's made up. Truth is that any biblical scholar, don't take my word for it, go do the research. This is what I always tell people. You don't want to believe me? That's fine. But don't believe your stupid professor either. Or don't believe that dumb article you read on the internet. That's fine if you don't want to believe me, but don't believe him either. Like, go be objective, be objective, but don't just not believe me and then believe what he said, okay? Anyone who is a scholar of the Bible, even people who are not Christian, will tell you that the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is separate. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of those Gospels were written within 30 years of the death and resurrection of Christ, all right? Within 30 years. Where the uh, greatest stories of, of the resurrection are written, like I said, within 30 years of after it happened. Now, even before that, you can take a look at the epistles, which spoke about the resurrection as well. And there are certain epistles which can be dated to within five years of the resurrection of Christ. One of which, okay, is this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. It wasn't, 1 Corinthians 15 wasn't written within five years, but this, what I'm going to read to you right now, is like a creed, which was like a short, you know how we have the creed, like we believe in one God? Well, they had a first century creed. It was very short, and it was something that everyone knew and was widely accepted. And it was kind of like put in the tune of like a song, and that's what this is. And this creed is evidence that this was written within two to five years after the resurrection of Christ. It says this, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. That first part, like I said, within two to five years, after the resurrection of Christ, they had this commonly accepted creed that said Christ died, he was buried, he rose again, third day according to the scriptures. And then St. Paul gives his own little interpretation, or adds on. He says, and in case you're curious, he was seen by over 500 people, of whom many which are alive today. Who cares? What difference does it make when it was written? Well, first of all, the fact that it was written so close to when the event happened means that there's not that much time for legends to exist. Like, legends don't create it, get created in two to five years. Like, if something is like, happened 500 years ago, exactly like us in our high school days. Like, a year after we graduated, we can't say we did this in the final game of the season. But 20 years after we graduated, or 50 years after we graduated, the fables, they get bigger with time. But there's no way within two to five years you can have such a commonly and widely accepted fact, which isn't really a fact. Secondly, why that's important? Because as he says right here, what does it mean when he says, the greater part remain to the present? Why is he saying that? He's saying, look, this is a fact, and this is a fact. And you don't believe me? Don't take my word for it. Go outside in the street and ask all the people who saw him. They're all alive today. One of the things that gives great credibility to the stories of the resurrection is the fact that there were so many people who had an agenda to disprove the resurrection and to say that it was false. And this is what's called in legal circles, hostile witnesses. There was hostile witnesses who wanted nothing more than to disprove that Jesus, prove that Jesus didn't really resurrect. But the fact that Christianity gained so much momentum at a time when so many people, if it wasn't true, they just said, that's not true, that's not true, and that's not true. I'll give you an example. A couple months, or not a couple months ago, six months ago, there's a little thing called the Super Bowl. And in the Super Bowl, the Baltimore Ravens defeated the San Francisco 49ers. It's a great game, very nice game, especially I know some people from Baltimore are very happy by the game. Some people hate Baltimore, and they just booed. 
if I stand up here and say to you, okay, guys, today I'm going to tell you about how the 49ers beat the Ravens. Okay, the Ravens beat the 49ers. But I'm telling you, I'm going to teach you about how the 49ers beat the Ravens. And, and not only am I going to teach you, I'm going to tell you that I'm going to start uh, a church and an organization, and the basis of it is about how the 49ers beat the Ravens in the Super Bowl six months ago. What's the likelihood of me being successful in my new venture? Be like, that's not true. You're not that smart. That's not what happened. Especially because Baltimore's just a hop, skip, and a jump up, up 95. Like, it's not like I'm on the other coast where people might not know this. But because it's just right there, there's no way. Now, if I come to you and say, you know, in 1967, the 49ers were the world champion. They defeated the Baltimore Colts. You're like, okay, whatever you say. But there's no way that I can create a lie based on something that happened so short time ago and find success in starting my new organization. If the miracles weren't true that were written about in the gospel, if the resurrection wasn't true, if all those stories weren't true, there, how could Christianity, like if none of this stuff is true, which they were preaching, and then they showed up and started preaching it, the likelihood of being successful in starting their organization would be zero. But that's not what happened. In fact, what happened is the exact opposite. Look, this is on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost. So 50 days, 50 days after Jesus died and rose from the dead. 50 days. So for two months, St. Peter stands up and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, you have taken by lawless hands, you have crucified, you put him to death, but God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. St. Peter stood in the midst of his people, said, two months ago, you did this. They said, yes, you're right. And two months ago, you saw this. Yes, you're right. And then within the last two months, you saw Jesus rise and walk around amongst you. And they say, yes, you're right. And what was the result of this is that 3,000 people decided to join their little movement. And Christianity started like wildfire. How could that have happened in the same city in which Jesus lived unless it was true? Ladies and gentlemen, the first exhibit is the earliness of the gospel accounts. Second, empty. Empty refers to the tomb in which Jesus was laid. Let me tell you some historical facts that no one can disagree with. Historical fact number one, Jesus Christ, man who lived in Nazareth, died on a cross. No one disputes that. Jesus, next fact, was buried in a tomb. No one disputes that. Tomb was owned by a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Fact, that tomb was sealed with a big stone and guarded by soldiers. No one disputes that. And the other fact, which no one can dispute, is today that tomb is empty. And there's nobody in it. And many people went inside that tomb and said, this is where Jesus was, and now he's not there. And for centuries, people discuss, where did he go? How did he get out? But no one has ever disputed the fact that he's not inside that tomb. Why is that important? Because if there was a way to find, if he really was a dead person, like you know how many dead people's bodies have been found for years and centuries, and we find like all kinds of stuff, and we find all kinds of bodies of dead people. No one's been able to find this body. And believe me, like again, back to the hostile witnesses, there's a group of people that if they could have found this body and walked that body down Main Street, they would have. Because that would have shot down 
the, the movement which they tried so hard to kill, if they could have just produced the body of Jesus, end of story. That's it. He's dead, right? So just find his body. It's got to be somewhere. There's no airplanes. It couldn't have gone anywhere. They couldn't have flown it out of town. Find the body. Put it on, the, on display. And Christianity's done. There's no more Christianity. But they didn't. Why? Because he's not dead. Because he rose from the dead. <clears throat> When Jesus' tomb was found empty, who was the one who discovered it to be empty? Let's assume right now that you think, okay, because some people think that the story of the resurrection, again, it's made up. The apostles just made up a story about how Jesus rose from the dead. Who found the body, according to their story? Who? Who found the body? Or, I'm sorry, who found the empty tomb? Mary. Mary was a woman. The fact that they made a woman, if it really is made up, like they wouldn't have made up a story with a woman as the source of finding the empty tomb. Because, no offense to the ladies today, but back then, women were not credible sources of anything. Like women weren't allowed to testify in court. So no one in the right mind, that's not today, okay? No one in the right mind, but that explains a lot of stuff, okay, when you see like the culture that we come from, okay? <laughs> No one in their right mind would make up a story and have a woman be the one to discover it. Like, okay, if you're going to make up a story, make it a, a believable story. Make it like Peter found it or James found it or John found it. Make it something that people can believe. But the fact that they had the women make up the story only shows that they weren't making up a story. They were saying the truth. And again, like I said, the most powerful fact about the tomb being empty is that to this day, everyone who criticizes or says anything about the resurrection has never said anything about the tomb other than the fact that it was empty. Look at this passage from Matthew 28. It says, Behold, some of the guard came into the city. This was after the guard who were guarding it saw that Jesus was risen and the tomb is empty. So they couldn't find anyone. Came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. This is what you hear people say. The disciples stole the body. Well, first of all, why is this so dumb? Why is this such a dumb argument? Tell them the disciples, you saw the disciples take him while you were asleep. Isn't that what it says? Tell him you were asleep, but you saw those guys do it. <laughs> like, it doesn't make any sense. If they were sleeping, how do they know who did it? Either they were sleeping, or they saw someone who did it. And if it was the disciples, just go... Step up to the disciples and find the body. Like, really, they took it. Again, they couldn't have buried it. Very, they couldn't have gone very far if this is really true. But it's not true because Jesus rose from the dead. Now, again, just so we can be, like, let's be, let's be thorough here. Who potentially could have stolen the body? Let's say potentially. Like, let's go through all the suspects. Who potentially had a reason or a motive and the ability, you have to have both, a motive and the ability to steal the body? The Romans, would they have stolen the body? No. They wanted the body to be dead. Like they, like it was their, their best interest that Jesus was dead. How about the Jews? Same. Okay, they hated Christianity, and they hated this preaching, so if they could have just produced the dead body, they would have, and that would have ended it. So they had no motive. They were the only ones who had the ability to do it. Okay, because they were the guards, and they were the only ones strong enough to move the stone. How about the disciples? Did they have a motive to do it? 
Yes and no. Let's say yes. Okay, I'll deal with that in a second. Do they have the ability to do it? No. Like, Roman soldiers, okay, big guys, disciples, little scaredy-cat guys. The likelihood of these little scaredy-cat guys going and being able to accomplish moving, the way the stone works, okay, the way it was, it'd be like a cave, all right, like on a hill, but they would always build the cave at like the bottom of like a little dip, okay, and they would have these big stones that it would take like three or four big Roman soldiers to push the stone into the little thing and settle over the opening of the cave. So it took three or four big strong guys to push it in. Who could push it out? Some weak little disciple guys, like sneaking in while the other guys are asleep, not making noise. Like they had it in such a way where it was very difficult to push the stone out. So there's no way they had the ability to do it. Did they have the motive? Some people say, yeah, they wanted to show that Jesus was alive. Really? Why? Why would they want to do that? They preached the resurrection, and what was the end result of their preaching the resurrection? For every one of them. What happened to every one of them? Except John. They got killed for it. Do you, would you be motivated to make up a lie, invent a story, and then preach it so hard that you end up getting killed for it? Like, that doesn't make any sense. People will die for the truth, but no one dies for a lie. Especially no group of people will say, hey, let's hold this lie together, even if they threaten to kill us. Even if they start chopping our heads off. No, if they start chopping one head off, we'd be like, no, it's a lie. It's not true. It's not true. Kill him, but it's not true. We'd sell each other out in a heartbeat. But the fact that none of them ever changed their story shows that they weren't inventing a story. They were committed to the truth. Last potential idea of why the tomb was empty. And I'm not saying this is my opinion, but I'm saying I read it, so I just have to be thorough. What if the women went to the wrong tomb? Meaning they were women, they got lost on the way or something like that. <laughs> As I'm just saying what the, the notes say. <laughs> well, for those who might think that, later on the men came and confirmed the proper location because men never get lost. <laughs> Bottom line, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, even though I might have just lost all the ladies, okay, is that the tomb to this day is empty. No one has ever been able to say otherwise. The tomb of Jesus where he was laid is empty. So number one, we said exhibit A is early. Everything written about it was written early during the time of hostile witnesses who could have quickly shot it down if it wasn't true. Not only it wasn't shot down, it gained steam. Number two, the tomb where the dead body was laying is 100% empty. No one has been able to prove or to find the body since. And then number three, or letter C, exhibit C, which is my strongest piece of evidence that I finished with, is eyewitnesses. And those who know anything about lawyer shows or lawyer movies, knows that when you bring out the eyewitness, everyone shuts up. Circumstantial, he did this, I think this, or this adds this. All those people shut their mouths when one guy stands up and says, I saw this. And even more powerful, if two people say, I saw this. And more if three, and more if four, and the more eyewitnesses you have, no one denies eyewitnesses. And that puts everyone, makes them quiet. How many eyewitnesses were there to the resurrection? Mary? Peter, John, and a few more. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Y'all know how many 500 people is? You're a jury. I'm the lawyer. I'm going to bring in eyewitnesses for whatever incident, crime, whatever it is. Y'all know how much 500 eyewitnesses is? Let's say we're going to do testimony right now. 
let's say the average person, okay, witness, is going to come and give you 15 minutes of testimony. So I'm going to bring someone up here, eyewitness, say exactly what he saw, he's going to talk 15 minutes. How long would it take to listen to 500 eyewitnesses each talk 15 minutes? If we started right now, you'd be here all day today, working through the night, round the clock, all day Monday, all day Tuesday, all day Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and we'd wrap up somewhere in the wee hours of Saturday morning, around 1 o'clock in the morning, somewhere around there. You tell me, you're going to sit here for five straight days and listen to people, one after the other, say, I saw this, I talked with him, I ate with him, I saw him in this bookshop, he was over here, he had a flat tire on this. Like, you're going to talk to 500 people, you're going to listen to five days of testimony and say, mm, not convinced. Mm. What if the 500 people were hallucinating? What if they all just saw a hallucination? This is what some people say. Well, if you talk to psycho psychologists and, and medical doctors and people who understand this stuff, they will tell you that if you have 500 people to have the exact same hallucination at the exact same time, that's a greater miracle than the resurrection. I can dream, you can dream. We can't dream the same dream. I can't say, hey, do you remember my dream? Like, we can't agree on the same dream. Even when we see the events live in front of us, we don't agree. So you're talking about 500 people to agree on the same thing? That's a greater miracle than even the resurrection would be itself. Okay, what if this was just some kind of wishful thinking? Again, if it was wishful thinking, it wasn't true, that would have been squashed by someone being able to just produce his body. To say, no, look, he's not risen. There he is, he's dead. And that would squash any kind of unrealistic or untrue things. What's the facts? The facts are that these disciples, these apostles, they witnessed the resurrection of Christ, and their lives were never the same again. They saw him die, they saw him alive, and because of that, they had hope that they never had before. They had courage that they never had before. They had strength they never had before. They had a perspective on life, where, like I said in the beginning, if it's true, nothing else matters. And if, the, if all of a sudden it wasn't true, then nothing else matters as well. Why? Because of this event called the resurrection. Their changed lives and their new perspective in life shows that the resurrection isn't a belief. It's a fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again. Something else some people say. Well, people die for beliefs all the time that aren't true. Talk about like the suicide bombers, okay, the 9-11 guys. They believe something to be true and they die for it. That doesn't make it true. There's a difference. Big difference. Those people who are up in the plane, who are crashing into buildings, they really with all their heart believe that what they're doing is true. They believe that. But there's no one who would do that if they knew it was a lie. You see the difference? The apostles were the ones in the unique position to know whether it was true or not true. Like the one who invented the story would never be up in the plane doing that. It's the one who believed the lie that's different. But the apostles were not believing stories told to them. They were witnesses with their own eyes. And because they're witnesses with their own eyes, their death, their martyrdom, their willingness to stand in front of the sword and take it for the sake of this belief shows, for the sake of this fact shows that it's truth. That Lukku guy, man, he's a smart guy. You know what Lukku did after discovering all this evidence? He became a Christian. He started following, the only logical thing. Once he saw that, the three E's, the early, the empty, and the eyewitnesses, 
said, you know what? He is risen from the dead. He is the Son of God. And he began following him with all his heart. What difference does it make? Remember the story of Lazarus? Let's go back to Lazarus now. What difference does it make all that I just said? Who cares if Jesus rose from the dead or didn't rise from the dead? What difference does it make in my day-to-day life? Let's go back to the story of Lazarus and finish up the story. He left it. They were sad. They were discouraged. They were depressed. They were, in their mind, like, no hope. There's no why. And Mary's like, why even go talk to Jesus? Like, what's the benefit? Martha's upset. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus said, hey, look, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. Believe in me. Never die. Story goes on. Then Jesus again, groaning again, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he's been dead four days. That's the Lord, he stinketh. That's us. I'm putting myself in this story and putting you in this story. We are at the point where we find ourselves discouraged. In a tomb of whatever, okay, in a tomb of sickness, in a tomb of, of no hope, in a tomb of discouragement, in a tomb of whatever. And, and Jesus comes and says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Believe in me and never die. We say, okay, that's great, but what does that have to do with me? My brother's still dead. Like, I know at the end. Jesus says, no, not at the end. I'm talking about today. And he comes straight to the tomb. And he says, move the stone. We say, no, Lord, don't move the stone. Leave it closed. It's ugly in there. Don't open it up. No, don't make me talk about it. Don't make me pray about it. No, 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 no. Just leave it. Like, I'm in pain, but just, like, just, just leave it. Like, just leave it alone. Jesus says, get the stone out of the way. I'm going in. Jesus says, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Open up the tomb. Because the resurrection and the life is going inside the tomb. I don't care how much it stinks. I don't care how dirty it is. I don't care how filthy you are. I don't care how hopeless you are. I don't care how miserable you are. If I can go inside and be with Lazarus, who Lazarus stinketh, according to the Bible... I can go in your stinky life too. I can go in your stinky circumstances. And I'm coming inside them. What happens when he gets in there? Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice. Lazarus, come forth. I love how he cried out with a loud voice. Lazarus, come forth. Screamed it. Loud voice. Lazarus, come forth. Why he said it with a loud voice? I don't know. Maybe dead people don't hear well. I don't know. (laughs) I have this picture of just like this old guy who's like, what? Like, you know what I mean? So Jesus was like, Lazarus, come forth. Like, he couldn't hear him, okay? I don't know why, but I've always put in my mind, if I ever raise a dead person, I'm going loud voice, okay? Lazarus, come forth, okay? Just be like Jesus. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth, and Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. The same story of resurrection Jesus stands inside a tomb. Open the tomb. Resurrection is in here now, and everything is going to change. Same thing happened a week after this. This happened exactly one week before another tomb, famous tomb, where Jesus was on the inside this time. And this time, he didn't need anyone on the outside to say anything because he himself was on the inside. He busted the stone, picked himself up, folded the grave claws nice and neat, and said... I'm out of here. And I'll be honest with you, two times right there and there, and then the one I just said about, and within a week span, he went in a grave, his death inside, was stinketh inside, and he came out alive. 
I don't think he's done going in tombs. I don't think he's done going in dead people graves, stinky places. I don't think he's done by a long shot. I think he's still doing it today. And I think his greatest desire is to say to you today, roll the stone away. Let me come in. Stop waiting for an event to happen and start clinging to a person to be with you. Because when that person is with you, doesn't matter what the circle, Lazarus died again. Like Lazarus eventually died. What Jesus gave to Mary, to Martha, to Lazarus would never die. He died, Lazarus, but what Jesus gave them never died. So what Jesus gave them is eternal hope. And what Jesus comes and offers us today when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Look, I'm saying resurrection. I prove to you that I rose from the dead. No one else has been able to rise from the dead. Don't believe anyone else who prom- don't don't believe that there's solution for any problems and anything else. None of that stuff, none of that stuff lives. All that stuff dies. You think money? Money gets buried. You think a person? A person can get buried too. You think a job, a career? You think any of those things? You think having kids? Like none of that stuff. All those things go six feet under. Only one who doesn't go six feet under is me. I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall never, ever die. He will live forever. And Jesus promises that today, if you will open the tomb, if you will stop waiting, that you would be outside the tomb. If you would just open the tomb and let him to come in the tomb, he can give you life as well. The bottom of your handout, I put a question. And it's your food for the thought for this week. And I want everyone to take this question and I want you to answer it. Not now. Not necessarily today. You could do it today. Maybe today's not a bad time. But I want you to answer this. And it wouldn't hurt you to pull out your journal. And I want you to answer this question. And ask yourself, where are you putting your hope? In what or in whom or in, in what are you putting your hope in to overcome the tomb? We find ourselves in tombs all the time. Find ourselves in hopeless situations all the time. What are you hoping? And I would encourage you, number one, I'd encourage you to write it out. Put it on paper. Be a man about it. If you're not putting your hope in God, be a man. Write it. Say, God, I'm hoping this new job solves all my problems. Go ahead, write it. Write it down. Be a man. Admit it. Say, I'm hoping that this person solves all my problems. I'm hoping if this happens, all my uh, put it down on paper. At least be honest and admit it. I encourage you to write it, and I encourage you to pray about it, and pray through it. Okay, it's an expression in my mind which makes sense. I don't know if it makes sense to you. Pray through it, okay? It's kind of like, like for those who uh, exercise or play sports, sometimes you get a cramp, okay? And you, 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 you can quit when there's a cramp, okay? When that, you know that right there, all right? Or you, what I was taught is you play through it, okay? I don't know if that's right or not right, but like you just fight through it, and eventually it goes away, Okay, so I feel the same thing when it comes to these tough situations. The tomb, it's stinky, I don't know, I don't want to open it. No, no, fight through it. Pray through it. Pray your way through it. Say, God, I'm upset. This shouldn't have happened, but I trust in you, and I'm relying on you. And I'm waiting to see what you're going to do if you're going to come through. And God's going to say, look, I am not going to solve your problem, but I'm going to give you the strength to get through it. And I'm going to make it so that you're going to look back on this problem in five years and say, I'm the dumbest person for complaining about this problem. Because that problem, that tomb, which you say, God, how could you allow Lazarus to die? You say, hey, hey, sit, sit, sit. Ten years from now, you're going to say, the coolest thing that ever happened to me in the world is when Lazarus died. Let me tell you the coolest thing that ever happened. Lazarus died. 
you're going to sing about until the whole wide world. I'm the resurrection and the life is Jesus' message for us today. And the challenge for you is whatever tomb you find yourself in, open it up to him. Let him come in and let him give you a new perspective, a new hope, because that's his greatest desire. Let's stand up and say a prayer together, please. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for the hope that you give us that no one else can give us. And we thank you that no matter what the tomb may be, how dark it may be, or how stinky it may be, you never are scared to get your hands dirty. You always come into our tombs with us and declare that you are the resurrection and the life. And that as long as you're in the picture, and as long as you're in the tomb, then everything changes. Lord, when, when we're by ourselves and we're trying to get through this life, Lord, it doesn't work. We find ourselves discouraged all the time. We're putting our hope in you, Lord, even if we don't even know what that means. I don't know what it means to put my hope in you, Lord, but I'm trusting that if I cling to you, Lord, that you'll give me new life. You promised, Lord, that whoever believes in you will see your glory and will live a life, a new life. We're holding you to that promise, Lord. Lord, help us during this series, Lord, to see you in a new light, whether this is the first time we met you or, or we've known about you our whole lives. Help us to know you more deeply and more intimately through our, our time here together. We pray this in the name of your only begotten Son, with the intercessions and the prayers of all your saints. Hear us, Lord, as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Through Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you all very much. Next week, we're going to do um, I Am the Good Shepherd, which is one of my personal favorites. So don't miss that. See you all next week.